Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Dear Governor is a production of iHeartMedia and Three Mutts Media. If you are moved by Jarvis Masters and his 30-year struggle on San Quentin's death row, and you'd like to support his cause, please consider signing a petition on his behalf. Visit freejarvis.org slash podcast to sign your name to an open letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. Dear Mr. Governor Newsom. This is an open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. When we launched season one of Dear Governor, soon after Gavin Newsom put a moratorium on the practice in California, there were 737 men on San Quentin's death row. Flash forward a little over a year, and now there are only 707 men living on death row. 30 Americans died, not from executions, but from the unconscionable outbreak of COVID-19 at San Quentin, as well as death by suicide brought about by the hopelessness on condemned row. When we started helping to amplify Jarvis's story, our team had a thimbleful of knowledge about the practice of capital punishment. Jarvis has taught us what it's like on the inside of death row, but one of our most trusted resources on the outside that we've relied on endlessly is the Marshall Project, a nonprofit news organization whose mission is to demystify our criminal justice system. So when Maurice Shema, a staff writer at the Marshall Project, published his in-depth tome on the history and future of the death penalty, we invited him to visit the podcast. Of his book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty, Publishers Weekly wrote, A nuanced and deeply reported account of evolving attitudes toward the death penalty in America. A thorough, finely written, and unflinching look at one of the most controversial aspects of the American justice system. 
And I read that book and it's jam-packed with, with research and stories. I'm curious how long, because I know it was a long process for you to write the book, how long into the process of compiling your work did you realize that you would be writing about the rise and the fall of the death penalty? Actually, fairly early on. So I first started learning about the death penalty in around sort of 2009, 2010. Uh, one of my first jobs after college was at a a uh, small nonprofit that was doing oral history research on the death penalty. And this involved driving around Texas and interviewing family members of murder victims and people who had been executed and prosecutors and defense attorneys. And a lot of those people we interviewed talked about the 1990s as a kind of heyday of the death penalty. And I dimly remembered this uh, from many years before. You know, I had grown up in Texas. I had remembered an era in which we were so strongly associated with the death penalty in Texas, especially when uh, George W. Bush, who was the governor of the state, was running for president. And the death penalty seemed to be in the news a lot because he had overseen so many executions. But even by 2010, it was clear that the death penalty had sort of lost its cultural hold. I didn't at that point know that the fall of the death penalty could could also be told in, you know, in terms of numbers, that the number of executions and death sentences was going down. But even by, you know, about 10 years ago, there was a sense that we were past the culture war heyday of the death penalty, where it dominated presidential debate stages and gubernatorial campaigns and uh, even dinner table conversations. We'd sort of moved on uh, to other issues. And so there was this sense that already the death penalty kind of hold on America was a bit in the past. And then as I continued as a journalist getting into the death penalty as a subject area and reporting on cases, I started to learn about the big systemic reasons why the death penalty had been disappearing. Did the influx of executions by Trump at all make you think that your hypothesis might not be right? That's a great question. So the the fall of the death penalty is something that you can see in sheer numbers. You know, there were almost 100 executions per year at the end of the 90s into the year 2000. And now, even with Trump's executions, you're seeing roughly 20 or less every year. Uh, the coronavirus brought those numbers down even further. But even aside from, from these sort of big, you know, one-year forces like the Trump executions or, or the coronavirus, um, you're just seeing fewer executions year by year. And even more dramatically, you're seeing fewer new people sentenced to death. There were 315 death sentences handed down in the United States in 1996, and there were 34 handed down in 2019. The drop is also dramatic in Texas, where I live and which was the epicenter of the death penalty. There were 40 death sentences in 1996 and four in 2019. Wow. So really, really huge drops. And that means that eventually there will be so few people sentenced to death that there will sort of be no one left to execute if you follow these numbers out to their logical conclusion. Now, the reasons for that are complex, and there's a lot of them. Um, one of them is simply that crime disappeared. The rate of violent crime in the United States was um, much higher in the 1980s and 90s than it is today. That means that there's fewer cases where the death penalty is an option by law, but it also means that crime is not the political issue that it once was. I mean, I think the death penalty came so much to the foreground 
partially because elected officials had an interest in using it as a way to show that they were doing something about crime. Whether or not it really does do something about crime is a separate question, but governors, prosecutors, judges, presidents, all of these are elected positions where appearing to be tough on crime is important. And addressing crime is difficult, but the death penalty is sort of an easy way to say, look, I'm, I'm really doing something. So over the course of the early 2000s, really the 90s and early 2000s, you started to see a handful of high-profile cases of innocent people exonerated from death row. You started to see DNA uh, testing grow in sophistication and and be able to prove that some people who had been sentenced to death were you know truly innocent. And this really shook people's confidence in the death penalty. One thing I write about in the book is how it kind of cast a new light on old problems. So you may have heard that, you know, somebody was given a really terrible lawyer who fell asleep during the trial. But if you ultimately think that everyone is guilty uh, and deserves the death penalty anyway, then a sleeping lawyer doesn't feel like a big deal. But if innocent people are being sentenced to death, then a sleeping lawyer feels like a really big deal. So I think innocence kind of cast a lot of old problems into a new light because it raised the stakes in how this system produces injustice. Yeah, Jarvis, whom this podcast is really focused on, mm-hmm. is, speaks very eloquently about that. Innocent people changes minds. It has, in every state, you will probably see that change the death penalty is because they found too many innocent people on death row. The money didn't do it. The moral consciousness of the communities in the state didn't do it. They did not want their tax dollars to kill an innocent man. Period. I can imagine seven people in an auditorium and they all talk about their experiences of being seconds away from being executed. That would turn people against the death penalty, in my opinion, very fast. Very fast. Because we're looking at seven human beings that we paid to be executed. That really gets to the consciousness of people and see what happens. I think most people in America would say, wow, this is not for me. No, 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 no. You guys got this all wrong. Jarvis says the more people see that that is a reality, that that will fundamentally change our our dialogue. It's true. It it has really changed the dialogue. It used to be that it was just assumed that everyone in the Republican Party supported the death penalty and most of or many of the people in the Democratic Party uh, supported the death penalty, too. I mean, famously, Bill Clinton flew to Arkansas from the campaign trail in 1992 to oversee an execution so that he could bolster his sense of being tough on crime. Fast forward to today, and you're seeing bills to repeal the death penalty brought to state legislatures by Republican lawmakers joined by Democrats. And there's no longer a sense that you are imperiling yourself at the ballot box by coming out against the death penalty. And I think a big reason for that has been that these innocence cases have shaken people's confidence and and made them see that the system is rife with human error all the way through. Right. And I should also say on that score that innocence doesn't only affect innocent prisoners, by which I mean, you know, if lawmakers are worried about innocence and then they increase the funding for defense lawyers, for example, mm-hmm. or they give more forms of appeal to people on death row, that also helps people who are guilty of the crimes, but maybe have arguments like that they suffered a constitutional violation at their trial. 
or that they're mentally ill or that they suffered trauma as a child uh, that was ignored by the jury and the judge, then that should have been, you know, more fully developed and, and discussed and that their death sentence, you know, is unjust because of these horrors in their own past. So innocence, it was sort of a, a kind of a way into a lot of broader issues about the death penalties, kind of systemic human-based problems. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. You know, as we are recording this interview, there are over two million votes to recall Governor Newsom. And um, I'm wondering what you think, because he was the one who put the moratorium on the death penalty in California. And is there a reason in your mind for, for San Quentin death row people to be nervous at this point? Yeah, I do think that the death penalty historically has obeyed what I sometimes call a law of backlash. Mm -hmm. So the death penalty was disappearing in uh, popularity and use in the 1960s. And then in 1972, the Supreme Court ruled that all death penalty laws around the country were unconstitutional and needed to be rewritten. And it was actually that decision that sparked a big rise in support for the death penalty in polls and a lot of political pressure on leaders to come out for the death penalty. And it's almost as if people don't realize that they like the death penalty until they feel deprived of it. And I think that you're seeing a similar dynamic in California mm -hmm. where, you know, Governor Newsom kind of went out on a limb. He dismantled the death chamber, which is a very visually symbolic thing to do. You know, Newsom dismantled the death chamber and issued this moratorium. And that made the news and was very dramatic. But it was not like California had been carrying out lots and lots of executions before that. The death penalty in California had been this very kind of quiet punishment, at least in comparison to states 
like Texas, Georgia, Florida. I mean, California was famous for having hundreds and hundreds of people on death row and very few executions because it seemed like there was very little political appetite to actually carry them out. But then by going out on a limb and making a big symbolic gesture, as Newsom did, he kind of set things up for a backlash for people to say, wait a minute, we do want the death penalty. And mm-hmm. and we didn't even really realize we were being deprived of it before because we weren't paying attention. But now, since you've dismantled the death chamber, we're paying attention and we're mad. In my heart of hearts, I think people believe that if you stand in line and you vote on the death penalty and that vote is discredited and taken away from you, people are upset. And they voted for the death penalty. And people believe that their vote was stolen. And the victims had no right to have that spell taken from them like that. And that is a response to the governor. There's a lot of people who are getting ready to spend a lot of money to uh, put the death penalty back in action. I think a lot of death row prisoners and definitely their lawyers would prefer for some of these issues to just remain out of the public eye because they know that when they're in the public eye, it puts all of them in a, in a kind of uh, danger that they're sort of on the firing line, so to speak. The ultimate of unintended consequences, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, others have, have compared it to Roe v. Wade, where the the sort of drama of that Supreme Court decision then spurred this whole kind of conservative movement to to limit abortion. And history may have, you know, played out differently had it just, um, you know, abortion had a history that was much quieter and sort of behind the scenes. Um, So, yeah, history does not move in a straight line. What do you think about the fact that the Supreme Court has been completely changed and altered based on Trump? Is that going to impact how capital punishment is looked at at that level with so many conservative judges on the high court? It is. We are already seeing that the Supreme Court is much more hostile to the claims of death row prisoners than uh, they had been even five years ago. Five years ago, there was even a moment in which defense lawyers who opposed the death penalty thought there was some chance that the court could go their way and rule to abolish the death penalty once and for all. It really all came down to Anthony Kennedy's vote. There was this feeling that along with Kennedy, there were four liberals who could strike down the punishment. Then, of course, Trump was elected and he eventually came to appoint three people to the court. And now the Supreme Court has had a series of opportunities to stop executions and has basically taken none of them. This was most dramatically uh, visible during the run of executions under President Trump. He oversaw 13 executions. And all of those prisoners brought claims to the Supreme Court at the last minute, and all of them were rejected by the court. And what this suggests to me is that the death penalty is its still in decline, as I've said before, but the Supreme Court's lack of interest sort of changes the arena where the fights are going to happen. So it's going to be less in the courts, less at the Supreme Court, and it's going to be more in state legislatures and in Congress, where, as I said, you know, you're seeing moves to repeal the death penalty or to limit it. Ohio now has a bill with bipartisan backing to abolish the death penalty. And even Wyoming, which by all accounts is a very red state, has a bill to abolish the death penalty and a conversation going on there that it would have been unthinkable five years ago. So I think that the Supreme Court, by supporting the death penalty so strongly, has sort of taken itself out of the real debate about the punishment's future. Got it. You know, I read a review of your book, Let the Lord Sort Them, in the New York Times, and in it they reference Texas is to America 
what America is to the world because your focus is on the Texas capital punishment system? I thought that was a really interesting line. And, you know, that New York Times review of my book had analysis in it that even I had not reached. And it was a kind of really pleasant moment of thinking, well, you do all this research and you write a book, but that's not the last word because other people will sort of see things in what you're doing that even you can't see. I had picked Texas to focus on in the book because it has been the epicenter of executions in the United States over the last 40 years. So there have been you know, a little more than 1,500 executions, and more than 500 of them have been here in Texas. So the state really punches above its weight sort of by any metric. And even more than that, Texas has a cultural association with the death penalty. Once I started noticing this, I started seeing it everywhere. I found um, episodes of The Simpsons and Saturday Night Live that referenced Texas's particular zeal for the death penalty. The comedian Ron White always had this joke about, you know, you come to Texas and kill somebody, we will kill you back. And he would always get laughs for that line, right? very dark by our 2021 years. And and then even further in the weeds, I would read journalism articles about the death penalty in other states, maybe states where the death penalty didn't exist or was less popular. And you would see a victim's family member, you know, in a murder case say, I wish we were in Texas, because if we were in Texas, this guy would be on, you know, the conveyor belt to death row. And that's just that would be justice. And, you know, I'm mad that I'm in Michigan or Massachusetts, and we don't have the death penalty. So Texas plays this role, and it's it's sort of where Americans look when we, you know, want to think about the part of ourselves that is very retributive, that is very punitive and revenge-oriented when it comes to crime. You know, people, every human being has these different sorts of impulses about how we react to, you know, shocking information. And so when there's a murder, there's a part of ourselves that is maybe interested in revenge, and there's a part of ourselves that thinks, well... This person who who committed murder, maybe there's more to them. Maybe they had a mental illness. Maybe there's an explanation for this, or maybe they're innocent. But when we orient ourselves towards the kind of punitive, revenge-oriented way of thinking, we often sort of look to Texas as the place that's bringing that impulse into its full form, right? Where the whole judicial system is sort of oriented around that impulse. And it's almost a a kind of self-reinforcing feedback loop where Texas here, people in other states say that and they say, yeah, that's right. That is who we are. And I, you know, growing up in Texas, always heard California used as the kind of foil of like, oh, well, there's a bunch of liberal sissies in California. But us in Texas, we're the we're the strong conservatives who who execute murderers. Um, so I think, you know, that line, Texas is to America what America is to the world. Similarly, people around the world kind of look to America as having a particularly harsh revenge-oriented justice system. And and then within America, Texas kind of plays that cultural role for all of us. Is that kind of the wild, wild west mentality? It is. It's, it's based on this idea, I think, that partially stems back historically to the frontier. The idea that in, you know, early American settlement of the West, you didn't have time to have a full trial and you needed to just, you know, string up the cattle rustler from the nearest tree. Um, this is the image we get in a lot of old Western films that are often set in Texas. And we don't necessarily as a country want to return fully to that, but there is a kind of nostalgia for it. This idea that, oh, it's too bad it had to be that way. But we were the rough and tumble frontier cowboys that, that just had to like take justice into our own hands. I write a lot in the book about how I think that that was a bit of a smokescreen for the actual history of extrajudicial justice, right, of taking justice into our own hands. It was much more often a way of reinforcing racial 
oppression, right? It was much more often a way of white mobs of people, you know, not waiting for a trial and taking a black man who had been accused of a crime and hanging him or burning him um, in the public square. Lynch mobs. Lynch mobs, exactly. And we can kind of paper over that history by saying, oh, well, let's watch the movie, the miniseries Lonesome Dove, you know, or or some John Wayne movies. Uh, It wasn't really about race. It was just about some cattle rustlers. And I think that all of that kind of deep cultural material is sort of there in the back of our minds as we debate the contemporary death penalty. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A about the lawyers litigating the death penalty in the book you you write whether they know it or not they lay out the cold facts and legal principles they are also helping us answer some of our deepest questions can a person be evil what does justice mean now you have dug into this for the last decade what is your feeling how do you answer those questions can a person be evil? I think the research for this book, it really changed me as a person in the sense that it forced me to really reckon with some of these deeper questions that I had never reckoned with before. And so, you know, I had always just had the kind of um, simplistic categories of good and evil that they're, you know, good people and evil people. And, you know, there are heroes and villains as we see in, in movies. But what I learned through the research is that, you end up kind of getting to where you want to get based on the way that you end up sort of the way that you start looking at the situation. And that sounds very abstract, but what I mean is, you know, I interviewed these defense lawyers who would start off by saying, I don't think anyone is evil. I don't think, you know, there are obviously evil acts, but I, you know, who come from a place that's very much hate the sin and love the sinner. And and they think that anyone who commits a really atrocious murder, there must be sort of some damage in their earlier life that produced that evil, terrible impulse in them that led to a terrible crime. And then these defense lawyers go and they and they research the life history of the person they're representing, and they end up 
finding out usually that they're right, that there's all kinds of trauma, sexual abuse, poverty, addiction, the entire laundry list of horrors that one can go through in their life. You almost always see those in the life stories of people who are facing that penalty and who commit really atrocious crimes. And so they ended up kind of teaching me over the course of the book research and, and bringing me along, I think, to that point of view, not the point of view that the death penalty is unjust, that's so a sort of separate question, but the idea that there's no such thing as an inherently evil person, right? That these categories that we have, they're useful in that they allow us to, to see the world clearly, but they can also obscure things and, and make us see that uh, nobody kind of commits a terrible crime in a vacuum, out of nowhere, just sort of wakes up one day and decides to do it. Almost always, there's going to be all kinds of horrible things in that person's life that kind of produced that evil outcome. And those evils aren't just about that one person. They're the evils of poverty, of addiction, of our society's failure to deal with mental health adequately. Um, and those are evils that are ultimately kind of on all of us, as opposed to on the individual who committed the crime. Uh, on the show, we talked a lot about how the death penalty obviously doesn't just impact those people that are on death row, but their family members, their friends, the correctional officers and so forth. But you write and dedicate a lot of the time in the book to Chaplain Carol Pickett. And he oversaw what almost a hundred executions. And I'm I'm wondering how does a man of faith come to terms with that kind of a responsibility? What did you observe in him through all of his experiences? I opened the book with Carol Pickett, who, as you say, was the the chaplain who oversaw and worked on all these executions. And what that meant was that he would get to know the man who was going to be executed, usually on the day of the execution, and try to help him get his spiritual affairs in order. And I opened the book with him partially because I felt like there was something very relatable. And, you know, not every reader, and certainly not I, are, are people of the cloth, but we I think can identify with his, you know, competing impulses that he went to work for the prison system because he wanted to help people. And then suddenly he's being asked to minister them before their death. And he felt very torn about that. He eventually came to terms with it by saying, you know, at the very least, I could be somebody who, you know, gave some care to this person in their worst hours and their final hours. And I could sort of provide the service and be someone who doesn't stand in judgment of them, you know, be a non-judgmental kind of calming force for them as they deal with this, because ultimately this system is going to exist with or without me as an individual. But then as time went on, he started to feel, I think, very co-opted by that system, this idea that it was um, kind of contorting him and traumatizing him as well. Carol Pickett writes very movingly about the idea that a particular man named Carlos de Luna, who was executed, was totally innocent of the crime. And Pickett really couldn't shake that. And then even as he was dealing with his own trauma, other men who worked on the execution started to come to him and talk about the trauma they were experiencing, that they were seeing the faces of the people they had helped to execute when they tried to go to sleep at night, that they were shaking and crying and having almost something like a panic attack when they would hear about executions on the radio. And Carol Pickett, over the course of his long career, came to oppose the death penalty. When I interviewed him a few years ago, he had been retired for quite a while, and I got the sense that the death penalty had really, you know, broken a piece of him and, and really taken a lot out of him in his life. 
when I would ask him these questions about the death penalty, he just frankly seemed kind of exhausted by the idea that he had been privy to so much trauma through the course of witnessing all of these executions and, and meeting all of these men before their death. And I, I think that really drove home for me the idea that even if you believe the death penalty is moral and just, and even if every single person who is executed is completely guilty and guilty of a really horrendous crime that everyone can agree on, even then the death penalty has some serious problems in the way that it produces trauma for the people who have to carry it out, right? That it's going to have to involve humans at various stages of the process, not just, you know, of course, executioners and chaplains, but jurors have to decide to send someone to death row. Uh, judges have to, you know, rule on these cases. Prosecutors have to pursue them. And I saw that you can't have that system without it traumatizing and hurting a lot of people, even beyond the immediate circle of people closest to the execution. Yeah. Yeah. Do you believe in redemption that the people were executing may be different from the person who committed the crime? I do. And particularly because there have uh, just been so many examples where you see a really transformed person. One case that really sticks with me and I think sticks with a lot of Americans who still remember it because it was so haunting on this score was the case of Carla Faye Tucker. She was executed in 1998. She had committed a really atrocious murder where she had left a pickaxe in one of her victims. But while on death row, she had had a really dramatic conversion to uh, Christianity. She became born again and she wanted to devote her life to helping other women in prison. She had no you know, idea that she was ever going to be released, but she thought I could spend the rest of my life in prison serving as a kind of mentor to people. And I never met Carla Faye Tucker, but in the course of my reporting on the criminal justice system, I've met a lot of both death row prisoners and also just life sentenced prisoners who committed a murder when they were quite young and now are tremendously transformed as people and really want to devote their lives to helping, you know, the young men and women who maybe come through prison for a year or two or five years kind of transform themselves so that when they go back out into the free world, they can rebuild their lives and avoid the sorts of decisions that led them down a path of committing crime. And I've seen a lot of cases where it seemed like by executing somebody, we kind of lost that human potential for them to be a mentor and a helper to other people. Can you describe to me what you think justice looks like? It's a really, really complex question, isn't it? It is. But I mean, you brought it up mm -hmm. and, and I mean, what's the answer? Because I struggle with that as well. Like LWAP, life without the possibility of parole is, it sounds like a heinous punishment. And at the same time, obviously, execution is as well. I see you see the decline in the death penalty. Will we ever see a decline in life without parole? I think that's the question that we now all face, you know, as Americans. I think that's the moment that we're in. There's this moment where, uh, and this was part of the, um, I think for me, the idea of writing this book now was that we've, we have seen a decline in the death penalty, but we've also seen a rise in life without parole. And it has also proven very difficult to 
reduce the number of people in prison, even as a wider society, we um, there's been an acknowledgement both on the right and the left that too many people are in prison for too long. Um, you'll see a kind of bipartisan consensus around that idea. But then when you get into the weeds and really start talking about releasing people earlier, especially for violent crimes, which many, many people are in prison for, there's a pause, right? And there's a fear that we're somehow undermining justice. I do think that I have learned through all of this research that for me personally, justice has to mean something more than just punishment. It also has to mean reparation. And by that, I mean that when someone is murdered, they leave behind a family and uh, loved ones who are seeking something in exchange for the trauma and horror that they went through. And for many, many years, our logic has been that punishment for the person who committed the murder is that thing that we give back to that victim family. Mm. But you now also see victim family members who say, no, justice for us isn't locking this person up forever and throwing away the key and it's not executing them. It's allowing us, for example, to speak to that person through a, a process of, of these sorts of programs that are called restorative justice. Or it's it's for us to know that uh, some policy changes are being made so that this is never going to happen again to anyone else's loved one, not just because this person goes to prison, but because we address our mental health system to try to prevent future crimes, or we address our uh, our gun laws because of the availability of this AR-15 that this young man had when he committed the murder. I mean, every case is different, but there are always going to be systemic sort of issues and 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 larger narratives that get brought into the discussion when you look at why a crime happens and i think that justice has to be understood in a very in a more complex bigger and more three-dimensional way to mean not just what do we do to this person who committed this crime but also how do we deliver some kind of healing for the people who suffered this trauma? What does that look like? And and does that involve something bigger than just putting this person away? I do think that sort of we're in this really exciting, in a way, moment. I mean, everything I've just talked about is very doom and gloom, but there is a lot of really exciting experimentation in the criminal justice system. I've written a lot over the last few years about prison officials in the United States who have gone to Germany and Norway and have come back and have been trying to implement their idea, ideas to make American prisons more rehabilitative. I mentioned before that older prisoners who are in prison for life often become mentors to young men. And in Connecticut, there's actually like a formalized program now where they live together and these older prisoners are enlisted by the prison officials to figure out like, what do these young men need? How do we prevent future crime? And all of that is tremendously exciting. And so I definitely plan to keep reporting on this sort of rich world of experimentation as we sort of grapple uncertainly forward in, in trying to figure out what justice is going to mean for us as Americans. Maurice's book is Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. Next week, the Awake Network and Shambhala Publications recently hosted a free online event, the Black and Buddhist Summit, that attracted over 10,000 participants. Jarvis was a keynote speaker talking about race, transformation, and the experience of being Black while Buddhist on death row. This episode was written and produced by Donna Fazari and myself, Corny Cole. Our theme song, Sentenced, is compliments of the band's stick figure from their album Set in Stone. 
Stu Sternbach composed the original music. Nate Dufort did the sound design. For more information on Jarvis and to find out how you can follow his case and support his cause, please visit freejarvis.org. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.